Well, good evening. Good to see you all here tonight. Please take your Bibles. Join me in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 as we continue our Wednesday night study through the book of Daniel. At the beginning of this chapter, Daniel had been reading Jeremiah the prophet and he understood that the number of years that Jerusalem would lay desolate was going to be 70. 70 years they would be in captivity in Babylon. And now with the Babylonians having fallen to the Medo-Persians, it's clear that it should be coming to an end here very soon. And we know this, especially from verse 1, where we're in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. And so... Having God's Word, understanding what it says, Daniel put it together, hey, we should be released here from captivity pretty soon. And so he sets his face to pray in verse 3. He's praying with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Because remember that Daniel probably had a lot on his mind that he's trying to sort out. There's a lot of information he's received in his life. And now he's been reading in Jeremiah And you'd really need to go back and listen to last week's and get everything that was said. But remember, he would have read how God was going to visit them. They were going to return to the land and the city would be built. They would serve their king who God was going to raise up. And God would establish the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so it stands to reason that Daniel may have had great hopes that the end of the 70-year captivity also would mean the coming of the Messiah. And Don't forget how Israel always associated their Messiah as appearing on the scene very triumphant, defeating the Gentiles and reestablishing the kingdom to Israel. An earthly kingdom, he would rule as their king and they would dwell in peace and safety. And that's still their view today. And so this view, as Daniel has all this information he does, it's pretty problematic really trying to figure all this out because remember in his earlier visions, he knows that not only is the Babylonian captivity coming to an end and the Medo-Persians are going to take over, but he's also been told the Greeks are going to come in and the Romans are going to come in and both of those kingdoms are going to cause a great deal of hardship to the children of God. And so Daniel's reading about a new covenant and he's reading about problems. He's, you know, there's a lot to sort out here is what I'm getting at. So how could the new covenant be established with the arrival of the Messiah at the end of captivity and yet Israel still be under Gentile oppression? Well, as Daniel was praying and confessing his sins and the sinfulness of the nation... The angel Gabriel shows up being sent by God to go to Daniel and to give him skill and understanding on the matter, likely to correct the nation's view of this coming Messiah, what it would look like. Because remember, Israel did not understand their need for a suffering Messiah. By the way, it wasn't just an Israel problem. A lot of people have that problem. I didn't need somebody to die for my sins. What are you talking about? No, you're a sinner. And so they didn't understand all of that necessarily about the Messiah being Uh, having to suffer, even though Isaiah uh, clearly foretold of this, and now Daniel's going to clearly foretell of this, but um, Gabriel's going to let him know, hey, the Messiah is going to be cut off. 
And so there's a lot of, this prophecy here is going to clarify a lot of things for the nation of Israel and maybe some of their viewpoints that they had. Not only is the Messiah going to be cut off or, or die, but it talks about the destruction of a city and another temple. It's going to be destroyed. They're going to rebuild the city. They're going to rebuild the temple. And that's going to be destroyed again. Well, wait a minute. I thought all these good times were, were coming. So Daniel's about to learn things are not going to come to pass quickly. The arrival of the Messiah is going to be 483 years away. God has a 490-year plan in relation to the Messiah, and He has a plan for Israel beyond that. And we're going to see that in these verses. Therefore, the Messiah wasn't going to arrive at the end of the captivity. The Messiah, uh, when, when He did arrive, He wasn't going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And He would not give them any lasting peace. And Jerusalem would be destroyed. And guess what? They would be taken captive again. So this prophecy has a lot to do with clarifying some of the mindset. Now, as I mentioned at the close of last week, we're now entering what is one of the most contested portions in all of the Scriptures. There are many varying opinions, and they are often very heavily debated. Some are so prideful that if others don't agree with their interpretation, then you can't fellowship with me. Well, I hope that's not the case here. I don't care if you agree with me entirely. What I ask you to believe is that Christ is coming again. And that his children are not appointed under wrath. I think we have to be in agreement with that because the Bible is so clear about that. So because there's a lot of varying interpretations and some are so prideful about it, I asked you at the close of last week's study, would you please just read through this this week, last week, would you read through it slowly, purposefully, um, really just slowing down, and then would you pray Lord, open my understanding that I might understand the Scriptures. And I hope you did that. I hope you came, prayed up, read up, and you're ready to receive. Remember that the Bereans received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And that's what I'm asking you to do, to receive what, has, what, what I feel like needs to be said. And then if you disagree, search and see if those things were so. And if you honestly do this and you still disagree with me, it's okay. I don't know if anyone has it all figured out anyhow. And if you do, come and let me know. I'd like your notes on the matter so I can pick them apart. I certainly do not have all the answers, but ever since I was able to admit that I was wrong in some areas, things look a lot more clearly now. Now, here's the bottom line. Um, You don't have to agree with me to be in this church. And my heart's desire is none of this will be a source of contention to anyone did you know it is possible to have agreements and yet uh, disagreements and yet remain unified? Amen. And so that's my heart's desire. All right, with that, let's go ahead and study God's Word tonight as a church family. Let's begin by reading what Daniel was given by Gabriel. Look at verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. 
The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So there are many key phrases that are stated here that we must meticulously consider if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. In other words, don't just read through this very quickly and move on, but slow down and try to digest it. For this reason, I'm going to move slowly through these verses. Verse 24, we are given the time frame of this prophecy, who this time frame is for, and what the purpose of this prophecy will be. We see, first of all, that 70 weeks are determined. 70 weeks here does not mean 490 days, but one week equals seven years. We believe this because when we compare Scripture with Scripture, and the Bible being the best commentary on the Bible, we believe that this is what it would mean. Remember when Jacob was serving Laban for Rachel, and he served seven years. It's called a week there. It says in Genesis 29... Verses 27 and 28, Laban says to Jacob, Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also uh, for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And so 70 weeks here is 490 years. There are very few who would object to this. And since it's so widely accepted that that's what this means, I'm not going to waste any more time on this to try to prove that to you. Next we read, these 70 weeks are determined. This is a unique word. It is the only time this Hebrew word is used throughout the entire Old Testament. And it it means to cut out. And this is a special 490 year period that is cut out in history for a very definite purpose. God is cutting this out. And, and as we progress, we'll see these 70 weeks are stated in three separate divisions. There is seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. And because these 70 weeks are determined, all 70 must come to pass. Therefore, in my opinion, any in-time position which does not include 70 weeks, should be discarded for those who believe that this is what this is referring to. Most positions assume they are including 70 weeks, but are they really? The most popular positions today teach that in the 70th week, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel and then break that covenant halfway through. And if if that's true, then are all 70 weeks really fulfilled? No. No. Because three and a half have been broken. So be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to hammer this idea of these weeks being determined because I think it's key. If 69 and a half weeks are actually being fulfilled, the last three and a half weeks are broken. 
And so therefore, it's not literally fulfilled. Um, not literally cut out because it's been broken. Many hold to a position which teaches the 70th week or the last week is referred to in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, which reads, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So if what Jesus said there in the Olivet Discourse is the 70th week, of Daniel, and I'm going to get ahead of myself. If it is the 70th week of Daniel and the days are shortened, then are all 70 weeks really fulfilled? No, it's coming up short of a full, determined, cut out 70 weeks. Is this making sense? So it's important that we understand that these 70 weeks are unique, they are determined, they will be cut out, all 70 have to come to pass. Next, we see who this prophecy applies to. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Remember that Gabriel is speaking to Daniel. Daniel is called in this book a Hebrew. And he's also called a child of Israel. And so in this chapter, he's praying for all Israel. This is mentioned in verses 7, 11, and 20. And in verse 20, he says, My people Israel. Certainly then thy people can be applied to all of the children of Israel. I don't think any are wrong if they want to drill that down a little bit further and say, well, Daniel was of the house of Judah, and therefore he was a Jew. And so this being thy people, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it's primarily for the Jews. Since it's the house of Judah that's going to be released from captivity and allowed to go back to the land and rebuild the city and the temple. And so remember, there's a biblical difference between Israel and the Jews. Not all Israelites are Jews, because the Jews are from the tribe of Judah. And later, the tribe of Judah would become the house of Judah, which would also include Benjamites. And those two would be known as Jews. So knowing this is a prophecy concerning Daniel's people, we know then that the holy city is speaking of the city Jerusalem. And while the Gentiles would become partakers of the purpose of what this prophecy is going to fulfill, it deals primarily with Israel, maybe more specifically with the Jews and Jerusalem. Next, Daniel is given six purposes of these 70 weeks. It tells us that it is to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so we're going to consider all these in order. I'm going to try to get through all these tonight. The first purpose, it says, is to finish the transgression. What transgression? Remember, it's about Israel. Israel had many transgressions. So which one needed to be finished? First of all, what is transgression? According to Strong's Concordance, the word transgression here means to revolt, as in to break away, as in a national, moral, or religious revolt. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines revolt to fall, to fall off or to turn from one to another, to renounce allegiance and subjection to one's prince or state, to reject the authority of a sovereign. In my opinion, the transgression which needed to be finished was 
Israel's transgression of rejecting God and His rule over them. His authority that He, he had as their king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4-7 through seven, Then all the elders of Israel, so this is all the leadership, gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, <laughs> and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. They did not want God as their king. Israel was guilty of transgressing the Lord. They were revolting against the Lord. And they possessed that same spirit when Christ was among them. John 5.43, Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Jesus described their attitude in a parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And by the way, that's the parable Jesus spoke because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And here's one excerpt to my point, Luke 19, 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And of course, they rejected him on crucifixion day. John 19, 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. I'll come back to this next passage in the future, but remember what Stephen said to the council, the religious authority in Israel. This was before he was stoned to death in Acts 7, verses 51 through 53. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. There's no disputing that Israel transgressed and revolted against the Lord. They renounced their allegiance to Him and their subjection to Christ as their King. And I believe this is the transgression that needed to be finished. The second purpose of the prophecy is to make an end of sins. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world, speaking of Christ, now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. What's the purpose of the prophecy? To make an end of sin. What did Jesus do? He put away sin. The third purpose is to make reconciliation for iniquity. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled 
by or to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The fourth purpose is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it's so very plain to me. And there's a lot of verses that we could have quoted. I just chose one for each or else we'd be here all night. And, yeah, amen, we're not doing that. (laughs) And so, each of these three purposes find their fulfillment in Christ. His sacrificial death on the cross. When He shed His precious blood for the remission of our sins. The fifth purpose is to seal up the vision and prophecy. Well, to seal up is the same Hebrew word used in this verse when it says to make an end. So what this is saying is vision and prophecy, and Daniel here is receiving a vision, vision and prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And we read phrases like this throughout the gospel accounts as it is written, that it might be fulfilled. There's other like phrases. What's happening? Christ came to fulfill Scripture. And so to seal up vision and prophecy, to fulfill the prophecies of of Christ, another, I would just call it a fairly popular viewpoint on that, Some take this as a punishment to Israel, meaning vision and prophecy would be closed for them. And there is some room for this thinking. Romans 11.8 says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. But I think it's best to understand this as visions and prophecies were going to be fulfilled Openly in Jesus' day. You remember Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah that he would perform miracles. They saw those miracles. And that should have alerted them that the Messiah had arrived. And, and so they did see that, but they stubbornly refused to accept him as their Messiah. In fact, if you remember, they wanted to kill him sometimes after he performed a miracle. The sixth purpose, say, man, you're moving fast. I guess I am. The sixth purpose listed for this prophecy is to anoint the most holy. There's a lot of debate here. I strongly believe Christ is the most holy. The debate is because the Hebrew word for holy can and often does refer to a place and a thing. In fact, if you're not using a King James Bible tonight, your version probably reads most holy place. But that's a bad translation to force the word place into the text. Because out of the 382 times that this word shows up, it doesn't always mean a place or a thing. But it can mean people. And I'm going to give you some verses here to think about. Speaking of the children of Israel, 
Exodus 22:31, And ye shall be holy men unto me. Obviously, this can mean a person or people. This is the same Hebrew word is what I'm getting at here. Jeremiah 2.3, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. Not Israel was a holy place unto the Lord. It was holy unto the Lord. Daniel 12.7, when he shall have accomplished, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. <laughs> Clearly referring about people. Speaking of the priest, Levi 21.6, they shall be holy unto their God. Ezra 8.28, ye are holy unto the Lord. 2 Chronicles 23.6, but let none come into the house of the Lord, save the priest, and they that minister of the Levites, they shall go in, for they are holy. Ezra 9.2, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. It can also refer to angels. Deuteronomy 33.2 He came with ten thousands of His saints. And that's referring to when God gave the law. Anyway, we'd have to do some comparing Scripture with Scripture on that one. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, uh, Psalm 51.11 Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Isaiah 63.10 But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 11, Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? And so it can refer to the Holy Spirit of God. Not just, the Holy Spirit's not a place. Amen. Isaiah 62, 12, And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And there's many, many verses that just simply talk about God's name being holy and His character, things like that. Clearly then, what I'm getting at in taking the time here is because this passage should not be forced to say the most holy place as modern versions are doing. And I have a suspicion they do so because they have a preconceived idea of what the interpretation ought to be. When we are far better off to just let the Word of God say what it says. Now, I think this speaks of Christ as being the most holy who would be anointed. By the way, Messiah means anointed. Is there scriptural evidence for my position? Of course. And I'll mention some of this again when we talk about the phrase unto the Messiah, the Prince, in verse 25. But for now, I believe Jesus was anointed by God when He was baptized. Remember, when He was baptized, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and it abode upon Him. After Jesus' baptism, He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and there He was tempted of the devil. The next event that we find recorded for us is Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth reading on the Sabbath day. And here's what he read. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Remember, this is essentially right after the baptism. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. I'll give you another one. Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 38. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all, that word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea, and beginning from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And so for me, it's just so clear personally. The, to anoint the most holy, I believe, is a reference to when Christ was anointed to go and fulfill His ministry that God had sent Him here for. So here's what I'll leave you with tonight. All six of these purposes have their fulfillment in Christ. Let me say it again. All six of these purposes have their fulfillment in Christ. I personally believe... Now, don't go slash my tires. Don't stone me or break out my windows, alright? I personally believe all six have already been fulfilled within the 70th week of Daniel. But stay with me. Because this thought will unfold more as we progress through these verses. Most dispensationalists, and frankly that's the problem that I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail too long with. Dispensationalism became popular in the 1800's and that has destroyed a lot of what was commonly accepted before that point. Read any commentator before the mid to late 1800's and none of them varied on what I just said tonight. It's a new position that's out there. Although we're led to believe that if you don't believe it, you're somehow whacked because you're not sticking to the old paths. No, if anything, I'm going back to the old, old paths. Whoop! Oh yeah. Amen. So, here's my point. Most dispensationalists, and, and I've got to be very careful with that word because it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So, let me put it this way, just put some people at ease. No, I'm not even going to do that. I want you all uncomfortable. Most dispensationalists will say these things will literally have their fulfillment in Christ's millennial kingdom. If that's true, then why at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ is Satan loosed on the earth to go and deceive the nations? If all of this is supposed to be quote unquote literally fulfilled in the millennial, well, when Christ comes back just before he sets up his millennial kingdom, then why are there still going to be sins, iniquity, transgression? Why is that going to happen? You see, we've got to be careful how quick we just throw out some of this stuff as being fact. How can verse 24 be literally fulfilled at the beginning of Christ's earthly reign if Satan is going to deceive people? And, and this is where I start to get in hot water with some because clearly these things that we covered tonight, 
a portion of these six purposes are meant to be understood spiritually. They were fulfilled in Christ, but they were spiritually fulfilled literally. Amen. How do I know that? Because Christ has made an end of sins in my life, literally. Hey, I am, I am righteous in Christ. Everlasting righteousness. That can't change. Well, and I know Christ... Anyway, let me just go through my notes here. Israel, speaking of these six purposes, Israel has fully transgressed the Lord. Christ made an end of sins to those who believe. Christ made reconciliation for iniquity for all who believe. Christ makes every believer everlastingly righteous. Christ is the fulfillment of vision and prophecy. And Christ is the Holy One that's anointed, the Most Holy. If that is true, listen now. If that is true that Christ fulfills these six purposes in this prophecy, then where does the Antichrist come in at? How does the Antichrist play a role in this when it's all about Christ? Well, that's the problem. Too many are looking for the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. And I intend to show you that the Antichrist is nowhere in this passage. Verses 24 through 27. I know for some that may sound like an impossibility because that's all you ever heard. But stay with me as we look at these verses. It will become clear. With these six purposes of the prophecy in mind, which one will the Antichrist accomplish? Will the Antichrist finish the transgression? No. Will he make an end of sin? Make reconciliation for iniquity? Bring in everlasting righteousness? Seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy? No. Antichrist won't do any of those things. Can't do any of those things. So boom, there you go. Until next time, amen. Keep praying. Keep searching the Scriptures to see if these things be so. And please stay with me as we go through this. If you're one who disagrees with where I've already taken this, uh, stay with me, and it'll make a lot more sense as we go. Let's pray.